Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With Science. Science. The Olympics have always hogged the limelight, understandably so. But the rise in prominence of the Paralympics in recent years has been stellar, showcasing not just the para-athletes' athletic abilities, but also the magnitude of the force within them. Yes, and Dr. Walter Thompson, a professor at Georgia State University and a world leader in sports medicine for para-athletes and co-author of Training and Coaching, the Paralympic Athlete, will be joining us today, along with para-snowboarder and silver medalist Mike Shea, as well as ice sledge hockey player and double gold medalist Taylor Lipset. This is going to be awesome. Isn't it just? So once again, another Playing With Science show with more precious metal than an episode of The Crown. So um, while I go and get the polish and herd the corgis, Chuck, uh, you just introduced the first guest. I'll be back in a sec. I'll be a minute. (laughs) That's right. Our first guest, he is a doctor. He is a professor. He is Professor Dr. Walter Thompson. Doc, how are you? Doing great, thanks. How are you guys? We are good, Doctor. Um... Your CV is actually 47 pages long. You are, are um, you are an expert with a capital E, it would seem. Uh, what, what do you have, a professor of kinesiology and health? At Georgia State University. Yes, the, you're the co-editor of the Bible for the sport training and coaching the Paralympic athlete. Yeah. And you serve on the Sports Science Committee of the International Paralympic Paralympic Committee to give it its full title. So, yes, you are most certainly you the are person qualified to yes. be able to have this conversation with us. <laughs> well, and thank it, you so much for that. Yeah. Oh, no, thank you. 
because you've brought it all into one package, which is really helpful for us. Yes. So maybe you can tell us about kinesiology. The, the, uh, one of the things mm. I love dearly, uh, my mom went back to school when I was a kid. All right. She went back to college. And I'll never forget the uh, very large book that she had. And it said kinesiology on it. And I was like, Mom, what is kinesiology? And she was just like, open the book and find out. <laughs> so what is kinesiology? Well, I'd ask you, what did you find out? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but uh, well, uh, actually, what we found out is the, the the study of kinetic motion in the body. So, it's the study of how the body moves, the study of the body's musculature, the study of the body's interaction with the body. So, I mean, that's what I got out of it. I'm not sure if I'm if I'm right. It was a long time ago. Well. <laughs> You are exactly right, and I just recruited you to write the introduction from my first, my next book. <laughs> doctor, that was a, that may was I just first. say, Doctor, you have asked for an awful lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you may not know what you just got into. <laughs> okay, so let's focus on the, the power athletes themselves. There is an awful lot of classification within the Paralympic movement, um, and it creates some friction from time to time. But what are the basic broad sweeps of the categories? Yeah, so the, the easiest way for me to explain it is to use uh, the able body sport as a model. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, we, we don't typically have men competing against women. Yeah. That's a simple classification. That's a gender classification, men, women. And then in sports like boxing and wrestling and other sports, we classify people according to their body weight. Right. So we don't have a 250-pound wrestler wrestling against someone who's 100 pounds. That just wouldn't be fair. Yeah. So there's a natural weight classification. So we have gender classification and weight uh, classification. In sport for folks with disabilities, it's a little bit more complicated because we have to make it a fair competition. So, for example, if it was a 100-meter sprint, there is a big difference in the biomechanics and the physiology of a single-leg amputee mm -hmm. and a single-arm amputee. It just simply wouldn't be fair. Mm. Uh, presumably, the, the single-arm amputee would win every time because of the lower limb amputation. Similarly, it's unfair for someone who uh, is a blind athlete to compete against somebody who is in a wheelchair. So in a 400 meter run, uh, presumably the wheelchair racer would win every time because they're in uh, a vehicle which would allow them to be faster in a 400 meter sprint. So we classify these athletes into these various categories. It gets complicated because we, we're still experimenting with uh, how closely of the impairment can we have and still have competition? So I'll give you an example. Uh, is it fair, and I'll just ask you this question, is it fair for uh, uh, someone who has a hand amputation uh -huh. to run 100 meters against someone with an upper arm amputation? Wow. And I would, yeah, so if I just asked you that question, you would probably say, well, no, it's not fair because the person with the hand amputation has a longer limb and therefore it, uh, the, the person that has more balance and they can control their movements much more easily. Right. So it's, it's a very complicated system. It sounds very complicated. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, 
who makes these decisions? Uh, is it is it uh, is there a governing body that says, okay, let's the International let's, Paralympic let's, Committee? I'm yeah, guessing is that, that says, look, let, yeah, let's make these decisions and and then make sure that everybody uh, adheres to them. Yeah, ultimately, it's the International Paralympic Committee for Paralympic sanctioned events. So that would be World Championships and. As, as you guys know, March the uh, 9th is the opening of the PyeongChang 2018 yes. Paralympic Games. That's yes. right. Very excited. I'm going to be there for the Good. whole time. Uh, it's going to be a, a great experience, and we're going to see some great sport. Uh, but ultimately, it's the International Paralympic Committee who has the responsibility for developing evidence-based classifications. Now, it's up to the sport to define that. So the, the IPC, for example, is not going to tell snowboarding, how to classify their athletes. Likewise, they're not going to tell uh, uh, field athletes uh, how to uh, classify their athletes. We, we let the sports do that, but we give them the context, the infrastructure to develop an evidence-based classification system. We're still working on it. Uh, it's not a perfect system, but it's as close as we've gotten in many decades. When you in your book, you, you, the title is quite interesting: training of Paralympic athletes. They don't all come in the same sort of package. Some may be hereditary, some through birth defects, some through traumatic incidents throughout their life. How do you then work to get those athletes to a point where they can be Paralympians? And and what sort of work do you do mentally and physically with these guys? Yeah, that, that's a, an excellent question because what the, typically what you and I want to do is feel sorry for the athlete because he or she might have had a, a bad accident, which uh, then led to a spinal cord injury, and now they're in a wheelchair. Uh, I got over that uh, uh, over 20 years ago when I first started working with Paralympic athletes and in, in my membership on the International Paralympic Committee because truly these are athletes. Uh, they're not just uh, someone who is in a wheelchair. Right. They are wheelchair athlete. Uh, and once you get over that, uh, well, you know, they're poor guys, they're in a wheelchair. Well, they, they don't want to be known as the poor guys in a wheelchair. They want to be known as Paralympic athletes. Uh, so when you approach a Paralympic athlete with training and or coaching, you need to approach it as they are an athlete. And guess what? They want to win a gold medal just like any Olympic athlete. Is, is it amazing. I mean, how much difference is there? There's some obvious differences in terms of able-bodied and less able-bodied athletes that, that you work with. Is, is there a great difference between the two in the sense of how the regimes are set up? I'm not talking about performance, but in the way that the regimes are set up. Game competition, is that what you're saying? No, it, it's it, the way that an athlete will prepare for a competition. Oh, the regimen, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's essentially the same as any other athlete. They approach their competition just like any other athlete. Uh, and again, their goal is to win the gold medal, just like the, the Olympic athletes we're seeing mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, Pyeongchang uh, Winter Olympics today. Uh, they, those Paralympic athletes want to do exactly the same thing. They want to win the gold medal. So they're going to train as hard as any other athlete. Mm -hmm. I do have to remember that they have a special condition, depending on what mm. kind of athlete they are. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, some of them may be on uh, life-saving medications, uh, but they're on the same water rules as uh, any other athlete. 
Uh, but they have to remember that there is an exemption for certain drugs and medications that they take every day. And yeah. they simply go through the therapeutic use exemption process like any other athlete might. So they don't fail drug tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really depends on the type of athlete. And, and there's one, one condition that we're really interested in, the IPC is really interested in, uh, and that is uh, what we call autom- autonomic dysreflexia. Mm-hmm. Simply put, that is artificially inducing a high blood pressure. Now, these are typically in para-athletes uh, in wheelchairs. And uh, as you know, it's, it doesn't do a lot of good for blood flow to go to the lower extremity in somebody who's doing upper extremity kinds of work. So what they do, not all of them, and, and some, of, some of this uh, is truly autonomic. It just happens. Mm. But some of the, these athletes will induce this high, extraordinarily high blood pressure to try to get more blood flow to the upper extremity. Mm. And if you can do that. More, the more blood flow to the upper extremity, the better they perform, or at least they perceive, perceive they better perform. The danger is that this autonomic dysreflexia, this uh, artificially raised blood pressure, could be as high as 240 over 140. Whoa. For you and I, normal blood pressure is 120 over 80, yeah. right? And even as we prepare for physical activity, the systolic blood pressure, the top number, may go up as high as 160 or so. But the lower number, the diastolic blood pressure, generally remains about 80 if it's normal. But with autonomic dysreflexia, they, automat- they, they, they have this reflex mechanism, which increases their blood pressure to the number that I just said extraordinarily dangerous because they can have a stroke, stroke. as a result yeah. of that. Believe me, I'm a, I'm a black man. Uh, I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> so yeah. even, if, even if they do this on a temporary basis, the exposure to a, a stroke is, is high, is okay. high risk, high category. Extraordinarily high. Extraordinary, yeah. And the, the, the problem that we have with the IPC is that there's no real way to detect autonomic dysreflexia without taking a blood pressure. Right. So there's no way, you know, so for example, if your blood pressure was elevated, me looking at you or you looking at me, there's no way to tell if Mm. you have high blood pressure until we put a cuff on their arm and and take their blood pressure. That's why they call it the silent killer. Yeah. Yeah. So what we've been forced to do is to actually go into the warm-up area, observe the athletes, and if we suspect that someone has artificially induced high blood pressure, we'll throw a cuff on them and we'll take their blood pressure. And if it's elevated, we'll take them out of the competition. Wow. So let me ask you this with uh, respect to uh, when we talk about the athletes themselves. Um, Let's say somebody um, is playing a sport. They have a traumatic injury and now they switch over to the Paralympic version of that same sport uh-huh. from a from a, um, a kinesiology standpoint uh it, how difficult is it and what would they have to do mentally and physically to make that switch because i'm looking at some of the sports here and even though it's the same sport god it just looks so much harder when you do it on the paralympic side i mean it's it's like it makes the the regular sport look easy yeah yeah, and if you don't have an experience with with that, I would uh, strongly urge your viewers to turn into turn on to uh, NBC. There, there's 94 hours of Paralympic coverage during the Paralympic Games, March 9th to the 18th, and tune in. And and one of those sports that 
uh, you uh, you mentioned is uh, is uh, wheelchair or quad rugby, uh, and, and it's amazing that the majority of the players on quad rugby, this this rugby mm. played on a basketball court in a wheelchair, as violent as any rugby can be. Isn't it called murder ball? Uh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, there's a, there'll be a reason for that, I'm sure. Coolest name ever. Yeah, yeah, and it's a great movie. Yeah. I, I, I would suggest people take a look at that. It's, mm. it's a great movie. It's about the American rugby team. Uh, but if you, if you watch wheelchair rugby, you will be astonished at how violent it can be, under the rules, of course. Yeah. But if you ask them, what, what sport did you play before you became injured? More than half of them will tell you that they played rugby. Yeah, yeah. See, as a, can you from a, from an athletics point of view, from an athlete's perspective, if the athlete were, as Chuck was saying, able-bodied, and then found themselves not able to perform like that because of a traumatic event, what boundaries have they got to have gone through physically and mentally to then? come back into to re-enter sport knowing that they could never re-enter it the way that they exited one of them is thankful that they have a sport to go to that's similar to the sport that they engaged in before they had their injury okay almost every athlete will tell you that same thing that they are so very thankful to the paralympic for the paralympic games that they have a sport that they love Mm -hmm. Happen to have gotten an injury and may or may not have been related to their playing of rugby by the way yes agreed Yeah, but if they did get, uh, if they did have an injury, uh, and they love to play rugby as an able-bodied athlete, now they have a place to go where they can do the same sport in a wheelchair. But it's the same sport. Now there is a transition. Anybody that has a traumatic injury like that, there's going to be a transition between, uh, you know, I here I am, a, a well athlete, I'm a good athlete, and now all of a sudden I'm in a chair for life. Mm-hmm. You get through that transition, then you start thinking about, okay, I'm going to be in a chair for life, but what can I do with myself in a chair? And getting them back uh, into athletics, getting them back into a sport that they love, for example, rugby, Yeah, uh, it is. it does wonders for their psychological well-being and their physical well-being. So when it comes to technology, um, I was watching some videos of like very early Paralympic Games and then the Games from last year mm-hmm. and God it's it's night and day when you look at one how great these athletes are I mean it's they unbelievable yes. these are real athletes people mm-hmm. I, I mean seriously do not confuse them with you know I don't even know they're just athletes they're not Paralympic athletes they're athletes That's the most ex- inspiring thing you will ever witness in your life it's incredible but I also noticed that you see a lot of technology like yeah. increases in technology where does that come from? Who's spurring that technology? And is there anything new on the horizon that you see that uh, that may be forthcoming that's uh, good to look out? Yeah, yeah. Well, the answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Uh, every athlete wants to win the gold medal. And just like an Olympic athlete with his or her shoes or their outfit, uh, they want to win the gold medal. They're going to do everything they can to win the gold medal. So it's the athletes who drive, for the most part, the technology. They will contact wheelchair companies, for example, and say, I want the lightest wheelchair you can you can develop for me, and oh by the way, I'll be your spokesperson too. Mm. Uh, goes a long way, 
right? But you're yeah. absolutely right. And 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 one thing that uh, that I've been interested in is the disparity between countries and the technology. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you probably saw in uh, oh uh, maybe even maybe in London where you saw uh, these carbon uh, le- uh, legs on some of the athletes. Yes, the blades, the blades. Athletes yeah. didn't have access to that. And, and so you have to ask yourself, well, is it the technology that won the gold medal for them uh, or was it their athleticism? Uh, so, w- so what I've been interested in lately uh, is to decrease the disparity between developing countries and developed countries. All right. So if, if, if you look at, uh, you know, countries, uh, developing countries, for example, uh, in uh, South America and in Africa, they don't have the same technology as the Canadians and the Europeans and the Americans. Uh, so we're working very closely with companies to say, hey, look, you know, we, we really want these athletes to become part of the Paralympic family. We want it to be fair. We've developed classification systems, but now we have to look at the technology. We need to put everybody in the same kind of chair. Mm-hmm. We need to give everybody the same kinds of legs. We haven't gotten to that point yet. Mm-hmm still driven by economies of, of these countries. Mm-hmm. We're also finding that uh, through the Agitos Foundation of the International Paralympic Committee help, is helping uh, financially these developing countries and bringing in the technology for their athletes. Wow. But the, the desire is there, Doctor. The desire to have an egalitarian level playing field, no pun intended really, is, is there. And I think that is the true Olympic ethos to achieve that, to allow everybody to be able to compete and let the best win and move on. Uh, and be fair. And yes, be fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with, because we're out of time, but we'd love if you have a final uh, punctuation Message. that you'd like yes. to put on this, we'd love to hear it. Yes, absolutely. March 9th to March the 18th, tune in to NBC TV, 94 hours of coverage, including the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies. If there's one sport that I would suggest everybody watch, that is the gold medal match. It will be the U.S., I think. Uh, the gold medal match in will in uh, sledge hockey. It's yeah. hockey on a sled. Yeah. Uh, and it is every bit of as exciting as stand-up hockey. Yeah. If not, if not um, even more, because unlike regular hockey, uh, these guys propel themselves with the sticks that they use to shoot. It is unbelievable. And they check each other. I mean, it's it's the same as hockey, except that it's on a sled. And I mean, it's fast. It's exciting. It's physical. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I would love to see the uh, U.S. uh, come home with the gold on that. So uh, fantastic, Doc. Fantastic. We are going to take a break. Um, Enough wittering from me. Fabulous to have the good doctor, Dr. Walter Thompson with us uh, to explain so much about the Paralympic movement. When we come back, it's snowboarder Mike Shea, yeah, yeah. Paralympic silver medalist from the Olympics. And if you are interested in that ice sledge hockey, yeah. oh, how about a double Olympic champion? Yep. One of those two, Taylor Lipset. If you want to know what it takes to be a double world champion, stick around. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh... (laughs) <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With Science. And today we are talking about winter Paralympic sports. Yes. We've just heard from a world leader in the field, Dr. Walter Thompson, in our previous segment. So uh, let's get straight to the business end, shall we? And joining us now is Team USA para snowboarder Mike Shea. Yes. Mike, hey, welcome Mike. to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I'll Just to give Mike his props. Yeah, got to give him his due, man. Silver. The uh, Paralympics in Sochi, yeah. snowboard cross, which, as we've seen, is a bit like NASCAR on snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, World Championship gold in 2015, bank slalom, World Championship bronze in 2017, snowboard cross, and in 2012 in snowboard cross. So, pretty creditable guest, wouldn't yeah. you say? I'd say just a little bit. Yeah. 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 He might know what he's doing. <laughs> he'll might know do. what he's doing. Right? Well, he'll do. Yeah. 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 Sure. Exactly. We could have done much worse. Hey, Mike. Uh, <laughs> Are you ready for Pyeongchang? Yeah. I hope so, man. It's been a really incredible year uh, prepping for things and traveling on the World Cup circuit. Had a pretty good season. Um, I came home with the World Cup overall title in Bank Solomon, so I couldn't be more prepared for the games. I just have to stay healthy and uh, make sure that I have the right mindset moving forward. Oh, I'm sure you have together. Yeah, Yeah. we know you got the right mindset, man. You know, doing the research on you, you're a beast, dude. So, what is you are a what is the criteria? Okay, so. The other things with the health and the mindset. So what is the criteria for a para snowboarder? And I've got to do this, an elite athlete like yourself. Well, you mean like in terms of selection criteria, like what it takes to be on in the games or on the U.S. team? All of the above. So the criteria for U.S. Uh, Paralympics to be on the U.S. national team, which uh, gives you the ability to have funding uh, from the USOC and all of the perks such as training at the Olympic Training Centers and having – uh, wax technicians and uh, personal trainers. You have to be, it's, it's pretty hard to be on the U.S. national team for us. You have to be top five in the world. Um, and we have three athletes who are ranked top five in the world in our division. So it's a really competitive field. And um, I'm luckily on the national team. And then to make the Paralympic team, the criteria is a little bit different. You had to uh, have so many podiums within the last, I think, 12 months or so in order for you to make the games team. Somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure. I just know that uh, 
I did what I took to, for me to make the team this year and uh, tried not to pay too much attention to that stuff. See that, All right. See, that's, a, that's the mark of a true athlete right I did there. What it took. I did what it took, and I tried not to pay too much attention to it. Hey, can you explain <laughs> what adaptive snowboarding is? I yes. saw that term keep popping up, and they never explain it. They just keep saying adaptive snowboarding in all the, you know, in the videos and in the reading. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so adaptive snowboarding, uh, it's, it's basically snowboarding. And the adaptive before it is just uh, explaining the differences between regular snowboarding and us, which is basically we just use adaptive equipment. So we're snowboarders with disabilities. Some of us are below knee amputees. Some of us are above knee amputees. Yeah. Uh, we have disabilities such as cerebral palsy. And we just use certain adaptive equipment to help us uh, snowboard. And for me, it's a prosthetic leg. Aside from that, everything is almost identical. Uh, we use the same snowboards, we use the same bindings, we use the same gear. Um, everything else is almost identical. Cool, cool. So I know that, um, and we're going to get into your story in a second because you have a really, uh, uh, a pretty compelling story. But one of the things that you were into before you pretty much gave up your life to do the, be a Paralympic champion, you were into woodworking. And I want to know, how did that happen? Where did your love of woodworking come from? And then you, you gave it up to go and, and do this. So how did that decision come about? Yeah, man, it's just like everything in life. It just sort of just, you know, you, you all of a sudden take these different paths and you end up on these roads you never thought you'd be on. And I never thought that I'd be a woodworker, let alone a professional uh, furniture builder. Um, but one you know year after, it was after my amputation, and I was really trying to to find my identity and figure out what I enjoyed doing. Um, I built a dog house for my dog in the backyard um, that he never used, by the way, but I really actually enjoyed building it. <laughs> that still bites, doesn't it? Pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. It does. He never used it, but it looks good. So, and I, and it's what, it's where I found my love for woodworking. So, but you had some celebrity clientele. You I weren't did. just making unused dog houses. No, and I had I was lucky enough to have worked for uh, um, uh, Rick Insulation Company. Rick, uh, what's his last name? Rick Anderson Insulation Company. We did uh, window coverings, motorized window coverings, and um, things for in these high end homes. And so I already had a connection with that clientele and those designers. And then for me to be able to have my furniture and and uh, do jobs in those same areas, it really worked out for me. So here you are. You are you're you found this love of woodworking as a result of yeah. your injury mm -hmm. and you were already an athlete uh, <clears throat> and you were already into, you know, uh, you know, a love of the sport, but why don't you give us your story? I don't want to put it in my words. You can no, put no, it no, in it has your to words be from you, sir. And, and tell us exactly what happened and how you ended up uh, with your injury, which was, which was very traumatic. And I'd love to know the psychology of what happened to you and how you transitioned. Yeah, man. I, you know, at that time in my life, I really, you know, I, I really wasn't in a place that I really was comfortable with. Um, I was hanging out with the wrong people. I was drinking a whole lot and partying. And um, in my mind, that, that was a time where I should have really been focusing on school and thinking about what I was going to do uh, for the next phase of my life. But that really all changed for me when I was at the age of 19 in 2002. And I was out wakeboarding with friends. Um, and I was sitting on the railing of the boat where I probably shouldn't have been sitting and the wake, the, the uh, boat was headed to the other side of the lake for better water. And we hit a cross wake. And all I remember was just being thrown off the edge of the boat and into the water. And it all happened so quick that I didn't really have a whole lot of time to think, but I remember feeling the rope wrapped around my neck 
in the back of my arm wow. and uh, knowing that that rope was still attached to the boat because we were just wakeboarding moments before. Um, so I thought to myself, you know, I better get this unraveled from around my neck and my arm before it tightens up. Cause it's not going to be pretty. I, I got it unraveled from my neck just as it sliced through the back of my arm, then cinched up around my ankle. And I just heard this loud noise and I didn't really know what it was at that time because it was so quick and so sudden. Um, you know, sometimes when you cut your finger with a knife and it's really sharp, you don't even feel it. Right. It just happened so fast. And I remember getting up to the swim deck when my friends came back around to pick me up and I got on the back of the boat and I saw that the water around me was just red from all the. Um, and I, the moment I lifted, lift my leg out of the water and saw what was left, it was pretty obvious to me that it was just, it was completely gone. It was mangled. Um, and then I, that's when I knew my life was pretty much going to change forever. So it was chaos after that for a little so while. So from that point, we're moving forwards, upwards, onwards, very positive. Or was there just this, what now? Or did you think, right, I've got to get to do something that achieves, or how long did it take? To recover from that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and I mean, I'm sure, of course you have physical rehab, but mentally as well. Yeah, mentally as much as anything. Yeah. You know what, what's strange is, is mentally it was so easy for me to get back on my feet and just say, you know what, I can do this. I, mean, it's, I think that's because I had the family and the friends and the support system um, that I'm so grateful to have, but yeah. physically. For me, it was like I wanted to to get over it right away, and I wanted to get back on my feet. But physically, I I couldn't keep up with my mind, um, and so it took quite a bit of time. Luckily, I was able to get back on my feet and snowboarding within a couple of months. Um, but wow. that's uh, still, you know, I, I even struggled after that for quite some time, and even after that, was still back into prescription pain medication and masking some symptoms with uh, the use of of oxycontin and Vicodin. Wow. Yeah, which is common, uh, you know, for so that's for a, but you. That you went on a journey. You, you really you did. You really did. On, so when, from that point, do you realize I'm actually I've actually got something to offer as an elite snowboarder? Yeah, and 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 and, and you really did give up everything and yeah. put it all into this this sport. So how did that come about? That's a line. Uh, you must have stood there in front of one side of the line and thought, "Do I want to be on this side or the other side?" Yeah. That's it, man. And for me, the turning point was honestly, like I, I went years after my amputation where I really couldn't figure out where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do with my life. And it was the day that I decided to get clean and sober and I checked myself into rehabilitation and I spent, I think, 30 days in patient rehab. I got out and I made that decision that from this point forward, I'm going to live my life clean and sober, healthy, and I want to be back to being an athlete, um, that I started traveling the world, competing on the World Cup circuit. And having this successful career in snowboarding, it was after I made that decision that, like you said, I want to be on this side, not on this side. And from that point forward, everything just kind of was was free running. Well, we're, I'm thrilled. The, 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 yeah, you, man. You, the clarity of your story when, in telling it is superb. And, yeah. and, and I'm sure know, it helps. Congratulations to you for being able to, to make that step and then put yourself in a position where you're at an elite stage. Um, because of our show and the nature of our show, we like to focus on science are you conscious? And we've actually done a snowboarding show with a professor of mm -hmm. skateboarding yeah. and also Dr. Skateboard, Dr. Skateboard, if you don't even know him, Dr. Bill Robertson, wonderful guy, and Othello Clark, who's a professional snowboarder. They were very conscious of the physics and science involved in snowboarding. Are you of a similar ilk that you are very much aware of what is going on when you do your thing? 
let me tell you, man, I get so sometimes in depth with um, technical aspect of snowboarding and what it takes, you know, maybe not like down to the specifics, but when it comes to my prosthetic equipment and my binding setup um, and playing with different things to get the snowboard to react a different way, I'm always up for science when it comes to that stuff. And it's like that with woodworking too. So it kind of relates to it. How have you found with your prosthetic that you've had to be loaded more towards one side than the other or have you been able to find something that is truly balanced it's never truly balanced because it's not like your real body and so you're always constantly trying to figure out a way mm. for your prosthetic to achieve the same thing that your real foot had um by you know and for me it was it was about putting a wedge underneath my heel so that i can kick my my knee forward and do a more natural um body position that i was able to finally mm. get See, that's, that's necessity, so cool. the mother of invention. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I said to um, uh, Dr. Thompson earlier in the show that it really looks like um, every single Paralympic sport is harder than the regular sport. I mean, it just like when you look at what you guys are doing, it just it's it just has to be harder. Am I, are my eyes deceiving me or, or, or is that the case? It just looks harder, man. Yeah, no, we've got to overcome the, the public stigma of what it's like to be an adaptive athlete for one. But number two is, is we're having to use adaptive equipment to, to make, make it work. And, and uh, every day I use science and I use prosthetic legs in order for me to achieve the same thing that a normal snowboarder would achieve every day. How do snow conditions affect you differently to, someone with both legs snow conditions are, are the same as far as the way that it affects uh someone with disability and someone without a disability conditions mm -hmm. are the same cool you mentioned something you had uh, you would have access as an elite athlete to the what did you call them wax technicians yes this, this sounds a great idea having watched a little bit of the olympics in pyeongchang i've begun to realize how much more important that is depending on conditions and that, in certain stages and the structure of the course itself, particularly on uh, the cross? Big time. Um, and, and that's when you really get into the science of things. Um, we have a wax technician for the U.S. team. Uh, his name is Mark. We call him Skitty. Um, he actually spends hours and hours every evening laying down a base coat of wax on our snowboards. Um, after he lays down a base coat the very next day, he takes snow temperatures at all the different parts on the race course because it could be – colder at the top and you know warmer at the bottom but not only that there's different moisture contents and then he applies a, what's called a fluorocarbon wax it's an overlay that goes on the base of your board uh -huh. and so the board actually has a little they call it structure yep. and so there's these little microscopic lines that basically makes the snow and the water beat off the board so when you put on these these plastic fluorocarbons in between those little those structures when it's laid on top of the snow it accelerates instead of slowing down and Whoa. so nail it right um it can be a wax race and and the course in pyeongchang for the able-bodied athletes was so straight at the bottom yes um it was definitely a wax race for some of those guys you really had to have your technician nailing it otherwise you can win or lose a race by almost a full second or that two was, depending on what wax you have that was the i5 was, was that right they're calling it the i5 but the, the start for me kind of freaked me out it was like there was a whole lot of snowboarders and the gates opened and they're on a balcony and they've got yeah. to drop nine foot. And then all of a sudden they've got these other th this technical aspect of the race right at the beginning where there was one border just got trapped as if gravity just went, nah, 
yep. sucked them down, wow. kept them there. The start is actually, to me, I, although it looks intimidating, it's it's probably a little bit easier than some of the more um, uh, speed parts of the course, which is down below. For, yeah. for me, every athlete's a bit <laughs> Um, I've always been more of a fan of uh, technical start sections, but man, it, that course definitely looked challenging for a lot of those guys. Yeah. So you are, um, I saw uh, pictures of you uh, with your blade on and you're, you're running track, you, you're snowboarding, you, uh, you're clearly an athlete, you know, yeah. like just an athlete's athlete. Do you, do you plan on like branching out or is it like you just love this so much? Do, one, do you still wakeboard? I mean, I'd be interested to know that. And, and two, do you feel like you want to do any other things? Because it, clearly you can do them. Yeah, man, I, I've always loved being a part of all kinds of different sports. And I've kind of always liked being a jack of all trades and uh, just just diving deep into different things that I've never tried before and trying to master that. So that's why I like so many different sports. I do wakeboard still occasionally. Um, I At that time, I had a lot of friends that owned boats, and so it was really easy to, for me to be able to go out and wakeboard. But these days, it's not as, it's it's much harder to come by, so I don't wakeboard as much. But uh, I do I wanted to do track and field for a little while on the Paralympic uh, side, but you know that takes years and years of training, and the focus has always been on snowboarding. And so, and my thought was just just finish um, this year in Pyeongchang and get my snowboarding um, finished with before I start any new endeavors. And we'll see where that takes me. If it's summer sports, I would love to be able to do that. Cool, man. Cool. Whoa. Well, we are, we are with How you about that? Away, Summer man. and winter. Summer and winter. Paralympian. Wouldn't go. that be the... Uh, awesome. Well, you know what? I wish you the best of luck with that. That's incredible. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Hey, man, we're out of time, but hopefully, um, you know, we can have you back to talk about uh, your next uh, chapter of whatever it will be. And um, I'm pretty sure the next time we talk to you, it's going to be a little gold happening, you know? Yeah, let's hope so. You know, I'm just saying, I'm not trying to jinx you or nothing. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, like, you know, probably, but, you know, gold's my favorite color. That's all I'm just letting you know. Me and you both. Me and you both. There you go. Mike Shea, you've been an absolute honor, sir, and the very best of luck in Pyeongchang. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Pleasure's ours. Take care. Uh, yeah, man. Wow. We're going to take another break. Um, awesome. From one inspirational Paralympian, we're going to be talking to another one this time. Taylor Lipset, an ice sled, sled double gold champion, a man who played on the U.S. team for over a decade. Yeah. It's going to be worth listening to. Stick around. Intense. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I am Chuck Nice. Of course, he's still playing with with science. science. And today we're taking a trip to the Winter Paralympics. And from snowboarding to ice sledge hockey. And we're now joined by two, not one, but two-time gold medalist, Taylor Lipset. Taylor, welcome to the show, sir. Pleasure to have you on board. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I look forward to us uh, talking a little bit about sledge hockey with you guys. Okay, yeah, now it's, it's a little bit of embarrassment, possibly not. You might like the idea of me telling everybody that you were on the U.S. national sledge hockey team for 11 years. You won gold in Sochi 2014, gold in Vancouver in 2010. And on your way to achieving those two magnificent feats, you got bronze in Torino, Italy 
in Correct. 2006. You are six-time world champion medalist. Wow. Six. That's many. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> many. And he was tri-captain of the US national sled hockey team between 12 and 13. Have we done you justice, sir? By all means, yes. Fabulous, yeah. because... Yeah, man. Um, I got to tell you, the sport, Taylor, so uh, watch, watch a couple games. Uh, one, congratulations on um, being a maniac. You guys are crazy. Okay. <laughs> Thank just you. Let, just <laughs> let me say that. Okay. But the game looks grueling uh what is what is the toughest part what is the toughest part of this game i would say the toughest part is just that it's so dynamic uh you know you're obviously using both your hands to propel yourself in the sled to skate you're using both your hands to pass and shoot uh all while someone's trying to take your head off right so yeah. um it's just a very dynamic sport you know having to be ambidextrous having to use your core uh to balance on the blades underneath the sled uh, and like I said, all while someone's trying to take your head off, um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun, but it's definitely hard work. You're going to have to do an all, a lawful lot of explaining about me losing my head and the fun bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> from a distance, it sounds bad. Actually, in proximity, I might not have enough time to worry about it. I don't, I don't know. So what for, I mean, apart from obviously what's been listed, what really was the attraction of sled hockey for you? For you personally, yeah. yeah. For you, your story. Yeah, I mean, one of the main things is that I was just a hockey fan uh, in general. And so, you know, the Stars came to Dallas, which is where I'm from, Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the 90s. And they won the Stanley Cup in the late 90s when I was a kid. So, you know, hockey was kind of growing in the North Texas area, and I was on board. I used to play street hockey with uh, my brother and my friends. And somehow they always put me in net and just, you know, sat me sideways. So my chair took up most of the space. Um, oh, cruel, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when I had the opportunity to try sled hockey for the first time, you know, I immediately fell in love with it. You know, it's, uh, you know, one of the first things that most athletes will tell you is that uh, it got me out of my chair. It got me on a level playing surface uh, with everyone else that was that was playing the sport. Uh, and that was a lot of fun and, you know, really appealing to me. And then, you know, like I said, once the, the sled hit the ice for the first time, uh, I immediately fell in love with it. And it kind of took over my entire life uh, from 2000 on and, or 2002 to today, really. So it was actually the ability to be competitive on a par with the other athletes on the ice that really yeah. drove you into that. Without a doubt. Yeah. When I was growing up, I never played disabled sports or anything like that, but I was a huge sports fan. Uh -huh. uh, I was athletic. And so that kind of part of me being able to compete, uh, especially as part of a team, was a void that was always kind of missing. And so, you know, again, getting out there with uh, the local sled hockey team here in Dallas, you know, filled that void finally. And uh, when I started learning more about the sport and learning more about the Paralympics and, you know, what the opportunities playing the sport really had, uh, you know, like I said, it just started to consume me as a person and uh, became my lifelong passion now. You you, you have a, a brittle bone condition, how, right. how, which does, which again, let alone <laughs> the taking the head off thing, uh, yeah. that condition is thinking why, but you've, you've explained a lot of good reasons in there. The challenges that you faced in terms of your training, your conditioning, your strength, everything else that you would require. What were the big hurdles you had to clear to, to achieve the status you have? 
really the biggest thing was just figuring out what kind of style I wanted to to have as a player. You know, everybody on the team has their role to play. Um, and, you know, it was figuring out where I fit in, where my best chance was to contribute to a team's success. Uh, and so I, I obviously wasn't ever going to be the most physical player. I wasn't going to be the enforcer. Um, I wasn't ever going to be the fastest because, you know, I've got both my legs and, you know, amputees for the most part hold the title for the fastest skaters. Uh, so I really just had to, to develop my skills and figure out where I could really contribute. And so uh, I really focused on my puck handling skills and my shooting abilities. And, you know, luckily that provided me the opportunity for a 10, 11 year career on the mm -hmm. uh, Paralympic team. Hey, do me a favor because it just dawned uh, to, uh, dawned on me that you know we're talking about the the sport and maybe people don't know what we're really talking about because uh, like I said and for those of you listening as soon as this is over you need to get to like yes. a YouTube channel and just look at some of the games because prepare yourself yeah, for the Paralympics it, coming up on March the ninth and and watch stage the hockey is going to be the one thing that you're going to hear an awful lot about am I right Taylor? Most definitely. That's without a doubt the most popular uh, winter Paralympic sport for sure. And I would go out on a limb and argue one of the more popular Paralympic sports overall. Yeah. So can you explain to uh, the listeners what the game is and just kind of describe to them how the game goes down? All right. So the game of sledge hockey at its heart is just hockey. Same role, same playing surface, five on five skaters, goalie in each end. Um, the only difference really is how we skate, how we propel ourselves. Um, and to do that, we have custom made sledges or sleds that we call in the U S mm -hmm. and if you think about it, they're kind of shaped like a U shaped dolly, uh, would be. And then, uh, each player has a, a bucket. Usually they're custom made at the Paralympic level, but a, a custom made bucket that we sit in that's mounted to that U shaped frame. And then we just take the blades off of regular hockey skates and mount them onto a custom-made bracket underneath the bucket. And, you know, that's our skate. That's how we get around on the ice. And then instead of having one stick, uh, like stand-up hockey, we have two sticks. And on the end of those sticks are metal picks uh, that are very, very sharp. Yes. And what we dig into the ice to propel ourselves. And then the opposite end is the blade, which is what we use to pass and shoot with. And like I mentioned earlier, you can use both hands to pass and shoot. You can go underneath your legs uh, sitting in the sled. Uh, so, you know, lots of opportunity to be very skillful uh, and do a lot of crazy things with the puck and the sticks and that sort of thing. And uh, like I said, it's extremely dynamic. It's tons of fun. It's extremely fast paced. I think that's one of the, the big things people are most surprised about that are yeah. seeing it for the first time. Yeah, it's super fast. fast it really is. Uh, and then second is the physicality. You know, it's, it's hockey. So it's full contact. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I always point out to people is that in sled hockey, we're sitting down on the ice and the boards at the bottom uh, don't give when you hit them. Right. The top of the boards are made to give a little bit when stand-up hockey players are checked into them. Uh, but the bottom of the boards are not made to give and they are solid. Uh, and when you've got players skating, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour, uh, when you're getting rammed into those boards full speed, it's essentially like being in a car collision with no car. Yep. Um, so you can just imagine, you know, how physical, how physically demanding it is and, uh, you know, it's a big part of the game. We did uh, a show. Remember, we did a show on ice hockey, stand up, as you will, as you've educated me to call it, stand up hockey. Stand up hockey. It's not a contact sport; it's a collision sport. Yeah. <laughs> 
And exactly. it, this is exactly. And it's the same thing with sledge hockey. It's yeah. it's it's a collision sport. It's unbelievable how. Not for the faint-hearted like no. myself. I mean, it's I, I I watched it and I was just I, I and forgive me, Taylor, forgive me, but I I got to be honest. I'm I'm watching this online and I'm just like these dudes are effing crazy. <laughs> like, oh my god, what is yeah. going? No, I think <laughs> it's going on. No, you come away with a healthy respect. Yeah, man. That's without being sycophantic you come away with a healthy respect for the athleticism that goes into the game yeah. I, I take you back to the point we're talking about the sticks do you are you able like a stand-up hockey to get kick points and to use the, the the stick itself to then drag across the ice and and give yourself an extra boost when you're shooting or is it a more rigid setup so yeah it's definitely more rigid so you mean like yeah the flex and the stand-up hockey sticks uh where they can really put them under load and then they yeah. kind of whip um, yeah, so there's not that in uh, in sledge hockey. The uh -huh. sticks, you know, uh, at maximum, they can be 100 centimeters. Most players don't have them that long. But, yeah, when it's that short, you're not going to get a lot of that flexibility in the in the shaft. Um, and so, you know, it's really all about using your shoulder, your elbow. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, surprisingly, a lot of players uh, use their, their feet or, you know, their lower extremities to help whip and get some force behind that. And, oh, you know, they create torque. Exactly. See, the, the, it is, the science is there. Absolutely. It's incredible. Absolutely. It's incredible. The top shooters in the world uh, are definitely shooting close to 70 miles an hour uh, with one hand. Yeah. Uh, which is just unbelievable. So to imagine me. you've got stand up hockey with the kick point. You're able to employ an awful lot of science and force. Mm -hmm. No. Everything's got to come from the player themselves. Absolutely. Everything's got to be self generated. Even more impressive. Yeah, I always tell people in stand-up hockey, they've got, they're using both hands, they're using both legs and the flex and the stick to get those shots off. Uh, and then, yeah, in, in sledge hockey, you've got one hand, no flex. And if you've got, you know, legs, uh, you can try to use those for that extra torque. But, you know, it's definitely uh, all coming from that one that one arm uh, for the most part. And it's incredible uh, to see players like Billy Bridges from Canada, uh, who probably has one of the hardest shots in the world. Uh, to see him rip a shot off, it's just, it's unbelievable. So when you talk about your training for, uh, and your practicing, uh, I noticed, so you guys shoot with both hands. Mm. Uh, you have to train to be ambidextrous in this sport. Uh, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so, I mean, just like what you just <laughs> said, you train both hands all the time. You know, no matter what you're doing, you're always using both hands, trying to create that equality in strength and flexibility on each side. And then it's just really about practicing, uh, you know, on the ice with the puck, using both hands, being able to stick handle and shoot and that sort of thing. And, you know, that's really what separates the good players from the great. It's those players that can stick handle with both hands, can shoot and pass with both hands. Uh, and you'll see in the Paralympics coming up here next month, uh, you'll, you'll quickly be able to see the players on the ice that can do that. And you'll notice how much they stand out against everyone else. Do you look down at the... I've got to rephrase this. How do you look down on the stand-up hockey guys? But how, do you feel superior? There we go. That's better. Do you feel superior when you are ambidextrous in the, yeah. in the way that you play and say, well, duh, why can't you be? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny. A lot of uh, sledge hockey players will train with stand-up hockey players or uh, practice with them just to get you know additional pr uh, training in. And, you know, one of the things we always hear is, you know, it's funny. They'll say, you know, that's not fair. You're using both hands. 
Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not fair. You're using both legs. <laughs> um, but it really throws them for a loop. You know, when they try to poke check you, you can just flip it over to the other hand. Or, you know, when you're going in on the goalie and you can just switch back and forth uh, until you find the hole that you want and just rip it off with either hand. It really throws the goalies for a loop as well. So, do you get respect uh, from the stand-up guys? Do, do, do the, the NHL guys turn up and look at you and go, yeah, we get this? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I've Good. gotten... To I get on the ice with Tyler Sagan of the Dallas Stars a few times, uh, and he's he said on multiple occasions that sledge hockey is the hardest uh, workout he's ever had in his life, and that's coming from an all-star NHL player. Has anybody ever thought to, because I want to see this, to actually... You're warped again, aren't you? Yeah. What's that? I know where you're going. Go yeah, on. Yeah. I got to have uh, a... You know, kind of an exhibition game where uh, you take stand-up hockey players, and I'm talking from the NHL, and put them on the ice on your turf or on your ice, on your terms. Has anybody ever done that? Because I would love to see that game. Yeah, yeah. It's actually happened a few times. I don't know that it's necessarily happened with an entire NHL team. Okay. Uh, I know for a fact that NHL players have gotten out there. I know for a fact that there has been entire college teams get out there and play uh, sled hockey programs from around the country. Um, and so there's a lot of that going on all the way down to, you know, little kids getting out there in sleds and playing youth sled hockey programs. Uh, That's pretty around. cool, isn't it? That is very cool. Yeah. For the NHL guys to to say, yeah, we'll do this. Yeah. And to just, embarrass themselves that way. No, no, show, <laughs> no, no, no. You know you're going to kick their you respect. Know. Yeah. I think it's, it's a kind of like, yeah, it, it's the brotherhood of the hockey family. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, hockey and the sisterhood. Sorry, I will. I must add that too. Yeah, that's yes. right. We we got sure. a, we, we, we've had professional female hockey players yeah. on this show, so we can't forget them. I have to ask you before we we sadly let you go. Yeah, what was it like to be crowned world champion? Not once, but twice. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, you you think about the the entire time that it took for you to to get to that point, all the people that supported you, all the sacrifices that you made, your teammates that you made. Uh, you know, commitments and promises to, to, to work your butt off, to be prepared for uh, the Paralympic Games. And then, uh, you know, to, to be able to accomplish that goal twice in a lifetime is just something you can't put into words. And I know it sounds cliche, but, you know, the, the best feeling in the world is being on the ice, uh, you know, arm in arm with your, your brothers, your teammates out there singing the national anthem. And, you know, those are two memories uh, that I'll never be able to forget. Wow, that's super cool, man. That is, that's, that's, that's just super, that super is cool. fabulous. Hey, I know you're retiring, and I, we got to let you go, but I'd like to know what's going to happen now for you, Taylor. Are you still going to be involved in the sport? Without a doubt, yeah, 100%. So I, I help run a program here in Dallas, um, a club hockey program. Um, so that's, that's a lot of fun. But I'm also on the board of directors for USA Hockey, so staying involved on uh, the national level as well. Good. And something that hasn't been released to the public yet, but will be here in the next week, is I'll actually be commentating for NBC for the Paralympic Games coming up. Sweet. Uh, so oh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Oh, I'm that's really fabulous excited. news. Yeah. Hey, man, congratulations. Yeah, and enjoy <laughs> it. Yeah. I don't think they could have made a better choice. Yeah. It's going to be a blast. Yeah. Well, oh, what a pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, oh, no, the pleasure's out. Enjoy your travels to Pyeongchang. Have a great time. And uh, I no doubt you probably want them to come back with gold. So uh, <laughs> let's see what happens. What a yes, pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. All right, Thank buddy. You. Wow, that's unbelievable. See, you can't say Paralympic world champion, Paralympic gold medalist without world champion gold medalist. Yeah. So I think I'll take that other bit out and just go, 
World champion, champion gold, gold medalist. medalist. Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, for the listeners, you have got to get yourself to uh, YouTube and watch some of these games. They are just, it is so Make it intense. part of your Paralympic package. Yeah. Taylor says they're dynamic, and I, I love that word. It's yeah. like there's a, that's 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 a euphemism, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, for, yeah, for like balls out. Okay, that's what this, because that's what this sport is. It'll be cold, it's on ice, Chuck. <laughs> just thought I'd mention that. Um Probably should be moving on quickly. Yeah, yeah quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests, Dr. Walter Thompson from the International Paralympic Committee, to Mike Shea, yes. our snowboarder, who will be joining Taylor Lipset in Pyeongchang, only he will be snowboarding while Taylor will be commentating. Yes. Uh, what a fabulous adventure into the para-athletes world. That's right, yep. Uh, Hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm still Chuck Nice. And this has still been Playing With Science. See you all soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 